I'd like to introduce my hero, feminist icon, Gloria Steinem. you could see yourselves. It's like an ocean. <laughs> Dear friends, sisters and brothers, all of you who are before me today and in 370 marches in every state in this country and on six continents for equality all over the world. Today on The Janice Adams Show, we're looking back on the extraordinary phenomenon of the Women's March, especially now as women chart a way forward. An International Women's Day tribute on The Janice Adams Show. First, the news. Today, on this International Women's Day tribute on the Janice Adams Show, we're looking back on the extraordinary phenomenon of the Women's March and charting a way forward. This is what democracy looks like! This is what democracy looks like! Janet McHugh? Janet, where, where, did you, where are you from? Upstate New York. Okay, so you traveled all the way here. Mm-hmm. Yep, I traveled here with my daughter-in-law, my daughter-in-law's sister, and her mom. So it was wonderful to be here. Now, they're marching in New York. Why didn't you march there? Because, well, they're, <laughs> because we wanted to be here. I think we wanted to feel the power of all these folks in, in Washington um, on the day after the inauguration. I mean, I think that was important to us. There was a wonderful march in Ithaca. It was a great march in Seneca Falls. And if we had stayed there, we would. But we have a whole family group here. And I think it was nice to be able to march with three generations of our family. I want our new president to speak for all of us and to believe that we're all part of this United States. Um, I think he speaks right now for white men, and um, I think there are many shades of America and um, many, (laughs) there are lots of genders and ages, and I don't feel like um, he understands that that's what the president of the United States is, is responsible for. Okay. In Brooklyn, in fact. In Brooklyn. I wanted to be where there was going to be a lot of action, and I wanted to be part of a big, huge group of people all uh, sending the same message to Trump. Can you tell us a little bit about what's happening here today? Well, it's a massive crowd. You can, right now, you can hear some of the yelling. What message do you have for the new president? You don't have a mandate. The majority of people voted for Hillary Clinton, and if you want to try to get any of your actions through, we're going to resist you every step of the way. I'd like to introduce my hero, feminist icon, Gloria Steinem. you could see yourselves. It's like an ocean. (laughs) Okay, I I need to be short, okay? (laughs) Dear friends, sisters and brothers, all of you who are before me today and in 370 marches in every state in this country and on six continents. Those who will be communing with us at 1 p.m. in one at one in a silent minute for equality in offices, in kitchens, in factories, in prisons all over the world. I thank each of you. Thank you for understanding that sometimes we must put our bodies where our beliefs are. Sometimes pressing send is not enough. (laughs) And this also unifies us with the many in this world who do not have computers or electricity or literacy, but do have the same hopes 
and the same dreams. I think, I think that because I and my beloved co-chairs, the golden oldies, right? <laughs> Harry Belafonte, Dolores Huerta, LaDonna Harris, all these great people, we may be the oldest marchers here today. <laughs> so I've been thinking about the uses of a long life. And one of them is that you remember when things were worse. <laughs> we remember the death of the future with Martin Luther King, with Jack Kennedy, with Bobby Kennedy, with Malcolm X. Without those deaths, for instance, Nixon would not have been elected, and there would not have been many of the wars we have had. Now, our great leaders like Barack Obama and, and Michelle Obama are still with us and remember how much we feared they might not be and how much threat there was, in fact, on their lives. And they are with us. And now our honored Bernie Sanders is still with us. <clears throat> and not only with us, but he's focusing on economic justice and achieving free universal college education in my state of New York. Right? And now Hillary Clinton is alive. And definitely not in jail. She who told the whole world that women's rights are human rights and human rights are women's rights. So crucial when collectively violence against females in the world has produced a world in which for the first time there are fewer females than males. Just this march in Washington today required a thousand more buses than the entire inauguration. A thousand more <laughs> And I was just talking with people from our many sister marches, including the one in Berlin, and they asked me to send a special message. We in Berlin know that walls don't work. I thank you from the bottom of my heart. Make sure you introduce yourselves to each other and decide what we're going to do tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow, and we're never turning back. Thank you. It's a hashtag Muslim Women Rising yes. on their sign there. Right. What is it that you want the new president to know? That Muslims have every right to be here. Um, we belong in this country and we, we worked hard to be here. And um, we're, we're not going anywhere. Jane, what do you have to say to the new president? I don't think I'd even want to speak to him. Well, here's what I would say. I would say that we're not going to go backwards. Women, that is. We fought too hard and too long to get to where we are. It's still not far enough. And if he wants 200,000 women sitting on the front lawn of the White House for the next four years, then it's going to be a, a big battle. And I think he needs to respect that. You lost the popular vote. I think you're orange. You're gross. You lost the popular vote. You're orange. You're gross. You lost the popular vote. You're orange. You're gross. You lost the popular vote. It means everything to me. I just turned 30, and I think that something happens when you turn 30, and you completely feel like a more like a woman. I just feel more settled in my my brain and my heart and my body, and. 
During this election, I felt all of my female ancestors and past lives just enraged inside of me. And I just really connected with this feeling of, I, watched, I also watched a documentary called Equal Means Equal, and it, it totally blew my mind how unequal it is. In America, not just the world, in America. So it freaked me out enough to be like, I got it. I'm a singer-songwriter, so it was nice to have a new reason to do what I do. Have a new passion and muse behind me for this for those songs that I write and for the like. Why am I here on this earth? You know what I mean. To to help make a difference, I hope. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for coming. I have the distinct honor and pleasure of welcoming to the stage the incomparable Angela Davis. At this very challenging moment in our history, let us remind ourselves that we, the hundreds of thousands, the millions of women, trans people, men and youth who are here at the Women's March, we represent the powerful forces of change that are determined to prevent the dying cultures of racism, heteropatriarchy from rising again. We recognize that we are collective agents of history and that history cannot be deleted like web pages. We especially salute today the Standing Rock Sioux. This is a country anchored in slavery and settler colonialism, which means for better or worse, the very history of the United States is a history of immigration and enslavement. Spreading xenophobia, hurling accusations of murder and rape and building walls will not erase history. No human being is illegal. Over the next months and years, we will be called upon to intensify our demands for social justice, to become more militant in our defense of vulnerable populations. Those who still defend the supremacy of white male heteropatriarchy had better watch out. The next 1,459 days of the Trump administration will be 1,459 days of resistance. Resistance on the ground, resistance in the classrooms, resistance on the job, resistance in our art and in our music. This is just the beginning. And in the words of the inimitable Ella Baker, we who believe in freedom cannot rest until it comes. Thank you. We who believe in freedom cannot like an ocean, said Gloria Steinem to the cheers of a half million women marching on Washington. When we come back, in the wake of the march, how are we feeling? What are we thinking and doing as the tide rolls in? More on the Janice Adams Show after the break. We who believe in freedom and Touches me most is that I had a chance to work with people. 
to others that which was passed on to me. We're back on the Janice Adams Show. In the aftermath of the Great March on Washington, how are women feeling? What are they thinking? In this segment, we speak to three women who made three pilgrimages to the march. Two in Washington, D.C., one in Boston. Erin Nixon, Melanie Freeman, and Dawn Hayes. I heard it was happening and um, that the planes and trains from New York were filling up pretty quickly. I live in California, but um, I heard flights were rapidly filling and then trains from um, neighboring cities were rapidly filling. So I hurried up and bought my plane ticket before I even realized that, before it was announced that uh, sister marches were happening in other cities. Um, There was a big march in San Francisco and one in Oakland. But I was very glad that I went to D.C. because I kind of wanted to be in the center of everything. Um, And boy, was I. (laughs) (laughs) And what exactly does that mean? It was the largest crowd I have ever been a part of. Okay. Um, It was, I was with a group of about eight people and we spent a good solid hour just chained together, holding hands, trying to thread our way through the bodies to get to a place where we could comfortably stand and not be accidentally crushed by people. That's, that's how large the crowd was. The turnout was, it was tremendous. Did you all decide to go together? Did you go separately with these people you knew before or what? I only knew one of them. I went with a friend of mine who also lives um, in Oakland. We flew out um, and we picked up her sister-in-law and her sister-in-law had some colleagues and we wound up all together being a group of eight. But um, I had only known one when we began the day. You are a biracial woman. A lot has been made of whether or not women of color in, in general should have attended or should have thought of even attending the march. There were some people who said no, they were not going to go. There were a lot of people who said yes. Where were you on that issue? Obviously you went, but, but was that something that crossed your mind before you went? Well, I'll tell you honestly, I knew that there was a racial divide behind the march. I chose not to look closely at that issue before the march because I was excited. I didn't want anything to dim my enthusiasm. I, I was too busy fighting for civil rights to take a close look at all the civil rights at hand. Um, I went there and there were certainly people of color there, but the crowd was mostly white. Um, I do understand the points of view of folks who said that, you know, I'm tired of marching. I've done my marching. This is, this is your battle. Um, I certainly understand the, the feelings that run deep there. But I also believe that this is all of our battle now and that, uh, well, it should have been all along, but it, it remains all of our battle. That black rights, our women's rights, our human rights, and they're under threat right now. Over the years, I have been asked, well, do you see yourself as a black person or as a woman? That's an interesting question. It is. It, it's an interesting question. It's also a strange question. So let me ask you, in your decision to go to the march, did you see yourself as a biracial person or did you see yourself as a woman? I'm both. Mm-hmm. I don't even really understand that question. How Great. would I separate being a woman from from my racial identity. That's exactly the answer that I gave. I gave. And um, and I got into a lot of trouble for that, um, which is fine because it that's their problem, not mine. <laughs> but I also <laughs> came upon a book that radically changed the way I thought about all of these things. The title is All the Women Are White, all the blacks are men, but some of us are brave. Hmm. In my mind, I'm looking at you. Um, you are both black and white. You are a female. It 
occurs to me that in your decision to go, in your response to being there, in your holding on to each other, those eight women, whether you knew each other before or you did not, it seems to me that the issue was being brave for you. Well, I don't, I don't know if I would say that I was being brave. Um, I just, I don't agree with what's happening. I don't agree with it. And I needed to, to be, to be counted as someone who stood up and said that I don't agree with it. Did you make any resolutions of your own? Is there an agenda that you feel is important for women who were at that march? Yeah, because it's more than just marching. It was a terrific statement that was made, but nothing happens unless we act in the wake of it. So um, I came away with the resolution to take daily action um, by calling my senators or um, donating to funds that support causes that I believe in. Heading into the march, I had not given a lot of consideration uh, to the issue of race. Um, and two nights after the march, I was on social media and um, a friend of mine had posted something along the lines of, let's not get too self-congratulatory about the fact that there were zero arrests at the Women's March because it was largely a white crowd and it was not considered to be a very dangerous crowd. And that really gave me pause because for the tremendous number of people that were there, the police presence on the ground was really very minimal. And we marched up to the White House as close as we could get. They had set the barrier very far back. But we were chanting our slogans and we put our signs down along the fence. And there was maybe two cops on bicycle um, just there. All these people, two cops. Mm -hmm. And as we continued to chant, more cops came up and more. And then an armored tank drove up and the hatch popped open and swiveled and the scope pointed at us. And everybody kind of quieted down for a minute. And then the cops took out their cell phones and started taking pictures of us. And we all waved and cheered. <laughs> and it didn't occur to me for a moment to be afraid. It didn't occur to me all day to be afraid. And then I saw that posting that my friend had made and I realized, wow, if this had been a different kind of march, if these had been different colored faces in the crowd, the police response would likely have been very, very different. Um, the chance for violence and altercation on the ground, even if the crowd had remained peaceful, would likely have been very, very different. And the fact that I did not consider that at all going into this march really makes me stop and think. There was a woman at the march who was holding a sign that moved me. It said, I'm marching for my Middle Eastern girlfriend who voted for Trump because she was told men would never listen to a woman. You are so much more than what you've been told you are by men. I came to Washington on my own, but my fiance did take the girls to um, a sister march, the one that was happening in San Francisco. And he did it amidst some of their protest. I think the 14-year-old was not really happy about standing outside in the rain all day. Mm -hmm. But the 16-year-old um, seemed to understand the importance behind it. And I'm just so very glad that they had an opportunity to do that. Um, and I'm proud of my fiance and, mm -hmm. and I'm proud of his girls. Yes, yes, indeed. And um, that a father would do that for his daughter, to, to father his daughters that way is quite a tribute. Melanie Freeman. It was crucial um, for women who felt a great deal of disappointment, as many of us did, to be able to be proactive and to get over, if I call it, the mourning period and really mobilize together as women um, and march. And, you know, we've heard a lot of what, what good would a, a march do, and I tell people to look back at the civil rights struggles and the Montgomery bus boycott and then ask me that question again, uh, because there's power in that. We had um, decided to go to Washington even prior to Election Day. We also had applied for tickets to go, uh, go to the National Museum of African American 
history and culture. Yes, so the new we, museum. We, the brand new museum. So what we decided to do was, in, in a sense, split our day. So we started out with the march, which the feeling was incredible um, because we didn't have any idea how many people would show up. I literally took a bus from New York um, into Washington, D.C. The, the afternoon of the inauguration. And, you know, there was some concern about that. And um, literally when I, and I, and I used the term the red hats, um, Mr. Trump's red hats, were leaving Washington as busloads of women. And the, the camaraderie between these women, even on the bus, everyone on that bus was coming to Washington for the same purpose, uh, to be, participate in that march. So we walked to about where the museum is, and there had to be thousands of women just standing in front of the museum on their way to the rally. Um, and I, and what really sort of lifted my spirits and what I knew then everything was going to be okay in terms of that day was the young women, um, and it was a diverse group. But, you know, I'm always very concerned that the African-American community is going to be represented um, because we have some concerns about the women's movement and how African-American women are not placed in that movement. But there was no issues about that. There were a lot of young women in their 20s and 30s, African-American women out there, and their voices were strong. Um, and I really appreciated seeing that. Um, and they were vocal. And for many of them, it was, and I spoke to many of them, this was their first opportunity to really participate in uh, a civil rights movement, if you will. Um, and that Women's March represented that. Um, so that was it. And then we went inside the museum, which is a whole other experience. I went for a couple of reasons. Um, I am a journalist. I work right now in the not-for-profit uh, field. I'm also writing a screenplay about my family's um, history. We were one of the first African-American families to move in this community in Queens, New York. Um, and I needed some background and just wanted to, to, to experience it again. You know, my earliest memories of my mother and father taking me on civil rights marches with them. Um, what I experienced there was almost life-changing. And um, just to to know what was going on outside, which was the Women's March, but to experience the amount of grace, and I'm going to use that word because the people who put that together, there's so much grace in every effort of that museum. And But to get the story right and to be sensitive to the people who have long since passed um, to represent their struggles. So I use the word grace, but there's also a lot of anger, especially given what the conditions and why we were in Washington, because some of these these struggles we've been fighting for years and years and years, and we're still fighting them again. Um, you know, I look at the civil rights marches, um, and there was a lot of video and interactive exhibits, and I think about what's going on in Ferguson. I think about Trayvon Martin, and, and at some point you get angry because you know, we're still back here again. So that experience for me, it, it, it is, it was almost too overwhelming. And literally, I don't even think we saw half of what was in that museum. The thing that I was pleased to see, by the time we got to the main floor and we worked our way up, there were many women who had been participating in the march did the same thing who had either gotten tickets or were in the museum, and I could identify them because of the infamous, beautiful pink pussycat hats. <laughs> and to see that in the museum. But by the, we were in the museum, I would say, for a good two hours, maybe even a little longer. When we left, it literally took my breath away because there had to be thousands of people 
marching on that street. Uh, so in a sense, the rally had moved down to where the museum is, and that's when my friends and I joined the, the, the march. And when I tell you it was certainly empowering, it was, it felt like that our voices were being heard. Um, it was not just women. It was men. I saw fathers, single fathers who had bought their daughters, explaining to them who a glorious Steinem was, explaining to them who some of the other speakers were, because some of these girls were 8, 9, 10 years old, and they had come with their signs. And it almost brought tears to my eyes because this is the movement that we've all been waiting for. Uh, if you look at the polls and what happened, the results of the election, it is because the white women voted for Trump. And there were many signs saying that, you know, do not forget white women, you voted for Trump. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, and there, and, and there was some general agreement both between black women and white women, that that was the case, and now it was time to fix it. And the only way that's going to get done is that we join forces and do this collectively. Dawn Hayes. I went to the march in Boston on the Boston Common. I've been, you know, watching a lot of stuff on Facebook and commenting. And I thought to myself, you know what, instead of just doing this um, on Facebook, which really isn't very productive, um, I wanted to go and walk in solidarity with other like-minded people and, you know, have my spirit be part of this movement um, because I've had such strong feelings about it. I wanted to show that, you know, I'm part of it. For weeks prior to the march, uh, I was very depressed. I mean, after the election, um, I was crestfallen. And that march buoyed my spirit. Um, and to this day, even though things are what they are, um, I, have, I have some hope, you know? I don't feel alone. I really felt alone prior to that. After eight years of Barack Obama, um, say what you will about his politics, um, I felt like that was an oasis for me. Um, and then things just seemed to dramatically change. So what I thought was quickly, um, you know, we watch a lot of CNN, we try to listen to a lot of NPR, um, and it just was jaw dropping, you know, you just kind of sit there in front of the TV with your mouth hanging open out of, you know, from our perspective, out of shock. Um, so I needed to find a place to put that energy mm-hmm. because I, I, I wasn't going to let it, you can't let them win, you know, whoever the them is. I mean, I, I, you know, was trying to find a way to save myself. I have two children. I have a daughter who's 20 and a son who's 17. And for most of their life, they've had Barack Obama as their president. They have not felt like they couldn't do anything. Do you know what I mean? They have not it's been an amazing time for them. And now to see this is like flashes of back when my parents were in the civil rights movement, you know, cause this is all we talk about now. My children are biracial and they're very fair. So they have lived a very interesting um, life. Recently, my son decided to grow an Afro and I thought that was very interesting because he's the least, we live in a very um, upscale um, suburban neighborhood just south of Boston, um, a place called Milton, which is very diverse. And I mean, he's doing great. I don't think he's skipping a beat just yet, but I'll tell you when he grew that Afro um, and he and his friends decided to go to the mall one day, I started thinking, oh my goodness, now you look like a young black man, even though you are very fair. He's not an imposing figure and he's the sweetest kid, but he, and he's very, very fair, but the Mm -hmm. Afro changes the look. And he, and he has two distinct groups of friends um, who hang out together and who hang out separately. He has his group of white friends and they're all lovely young men. Um, And then he has his buddies, you know, his, he has two black friends. And when they went to the mall one day, I really, I said to him, I said, Dylan, people are going to look at you differently with that Afro. I, I never thought I'd have to say, have this conversation. 
And I just want you to be thoughtful of that and be conscious of your surroundings. Um, and he's like, he's a regular kid, which I'm thrilled about. He's, mm-hmm. he's never had bias. You know, he's never been picked up by the police or he's never had any of those issues, which kind of worries me because I want to make sure that now as he turns 18 and he, he's, you know, going off to college shortly, mm-hmm. that he is aware of these, the bigger picture. We've always had the conversation, but it's never directly affected him. So he's a little bit out of that loop. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? So what made him decide to grow his hair longer? I, you know what? I don't, I don't know. Um, my um, partner, who has basically been his stepdad, was a musician. And we, you know, he's always showed him pictures of him with an afro when he was <laughs> his, you know, like those great old school pictures. Mm-hmm. Um, and then all of a sudden he decided to get this afro. And even on top of that, another interesting thing is he then wanted to have it braided which is also shocking because that goes into a whole nother level. You know what I mean? So now sounds like there's a young lady who likes people with long hair (laughs) whose hair is braided. (laughs) It really sounds, it really sounds like that to me. (laughs) So so it's interesting. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, some I, I'm so glad we got a chance to laugh at that because in the midst of all of this and the fear that's coming on and everything else, it is a reminder that we have a right to just be human and to enjoy ourselves for a moment. Absolutely. And I I know for me that's been some of the fa- the fear is of losing that again. Mm-hmm. You know, of mm-hmm. having to be so self-conscious. So as a mother, how are you armoring yourself for what you see going on now? Well, honestly, I started doing yoga in September. <laughs> and it has changed my life. That and the march. Um, I go five or six times a week. Um, I'm trying to be more spiritual uh, because it was really eating at me, Janice. I mean, it, it really... Um, literally the day after the, uh, the uh, election, when I came to work, you know, we were crying. My, my executive director of the organization I work for was crying. Everybody was in shock and fear and crying. Never seen anything like it before. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to buoy myself by taking care of myself and not letting, you know, them win. I mean, that's, all, that's the best way I can say it. You know, the best revenge is living well. When we come back, a soon-to-be stepmother's poignant letter to her future stepdaughters. This is The Janice Adams Show. We're back on The Janice Adams Show. Earlier in the show, Erin Mixon spoke of her journey of conscience from California to D.C. for the march. But even before the march, Erin, a soon-to-be stepmother of teenage girls, wrote a letter to her future stepdaughters for its articulation of the issues, for possible next steps and missteps, for its understanding of the impact on the next generation of young women. We thought you'd like to hear Erin's letter in her own voice. This is an email that I wrote to my fiancé's daughters shortly after the election. It's dated November 13, 2016. Girls, like many people, I've been devastated by the outcome of this election. I never thought Trump would win, not for a minute. Not until around 8 p.m. on Tuesday night. Donald Trump is an impetuous man with a short attention span. He loves the pageantry of the campaign, but he has little interest in the actual job of president. So he will delegate many important decisions to members of his staff. We should watch closely whom he chooses for his cabinet in the coming weeks. These are the people who will be leading the country. I'm concerned that Trump will make stupid decisions on the world stage, but I'm downright afraid of the decisions that his cabinet will make on issues of civil rights here in our nation. 
Mike Pence as vice president scares the hell out of me. I knew he was a religious conservative, but not much else, so I looked into his history. Here's what's true, and you can and should research all these points. On women's rights, he's against pro-choice. He does not believe in abortion for any reason. Because some Planned Parenthood clinics provide abortions, he has long fought to shut them down. Pence was successful in shutting down Planned Parenthood in his home state of Indiana. Planned Parenthood operated five rural clinics throughout the state, but in 2011, all were closed. Scott County was one of the rural areas that had a Planned Parenthood clinic. It was the only HIV testing center for 50 miles. When the clinic closed, the county experienced an HIV outbreak with 150 new cases. Now, Planned Parenthood provides a huge array of health services to both women and men. Abortion makes up only 3% of it. I used Planned Parenthood for years. When I didn't have insurance, they provided me affordable health care. I've told you this story. When I wanted to go on birth control and I couldn't find help at home, I went to Planned Parenthood. They made sure I was educated about birth control options and STD prevention. They are a crucial resource for people who don't have access to that education by other means. And that includes you, whose mom has refused you to participate in sex ed at school. The HIV outbreak in Scott County was due to intravenous drug use, completely unrelated to abortion. But one man's opinion on this unrelated topic shut down five health clinics that were the only resource for hundreds of people in these rural areas. Imagine that impact on a national scale. Girls, whether you believe in abortion or not is entirely your decision. No one else should have the right to make it for you, especially not a man who will never experience what it means to be pregnant. Abortion is not a casual form of birth control. By this I mean, it's not something to do because you were careless and neglected to use a condom or other means. It's not something to do easily, painlessly, thoughtlessly. And most women don't, because abortion is hard. But if you are a woman who has been impregnated by rape, if your own health is endangered by birthing a child, if your child will be born with severe health defects, if you don't have the resources to care for that child, you deserve the right to decide whether to have that child. And this is the crucial difference between pro-choice and pro-life. Pro-choice says, you decide for yourself and I'll decide for myself. Pro-life says, I'll decide for all of us. So a male vice president with a pro-life agenda can have a devastating impact on women's reproductive rights. On the topic of sex ed, Mike Pence supports abstinence-only sex ed programs in schools. He has publicly stated that condoms are ineffective in stopping the spread of STDs. First, that's false. When used correctly, condoms are highly effective in preventing the spread of STDs. Second, you guys go to high school. I don't need to tell you that preaching abstinence only doesn't work. Teenagers are gonna make their own decisions about sex no matter what adults say. It's the adult's responsibility to provide accurate and accessible information so that teens can make smart decisions. Because uninformed teenagers having sex does lead to more abortions. On LGBTQ rights, Pence is against marriage equality. He has actively fought against same-sex marriage. In 2013, as Indiana governor, he signed a bill that would jail same-sex couples for seeking a marriage license, as well as marriage clerks and clergy who assisted. He has supported the use of federal funds to treat people seeking to change their sexual behavior. This is code for conversion therapy, the practice of trying to reverse homosexuality through therapy and spiritual counseling. Until the 1980s, this practice also included electric shock treatment, chemical castration, and worse. Remember when we watched Benedict Cumberbatch as Alan Turing in The Imitation Game? Turing was forced to undergo chemical castration to avoid imprisonment in the 1950s when it was illegal simply to be gay. He committed suicide two years later. Conversion therapy has been linked to depression, anxiety, drug use, and suicide. Girls, I urge you to Google Republican Party platform. This is the official position of the Republican Party, not just something that a few people believe, but the actual party line. 
quote, Traditional marriage and family, based on marriage between one man and one woman, is the foundation for a free society and has for millennia been entrusted with rearing children and instilling cultural values. We condemn the Supreme Court's ruling in United States v. Windsor, which wrongly removed the ability of Congress to define marriage policy in federal law. Unquote. In Windsor, the Supreme Court ruled the Defense of Marriage Act, a.k.a. DOMA, unconstitutional. DOMA allowed states to refuse to recognize same-sex marriages that were performed in other states. Remember when we dragged you to the Castro a couple years ago to witness the celebrations? That's what was happening. Quote, in Obergefell v. Hodges, five unelected lawyers robbed 320 million Americans of their legitimate constitutional authority to define marriage as the union of one man and one woman. Unquote. Obergefell v. Hodges was the Supreme Court case that made same-sex marriage legal in all states just last year. What does that mean? It means the Republican Party supports the rights of judges, lawyers, business owners, and everyday people in refusing to recognize gay marriage. This is what they're calling free society, the freedom to ignore and invalidate someone's marriage just because they are gay. It goes further. Just last year, Mike Pence passed the Indiana Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which allows businesses and individuals in that state to discriminate against anyone who offends their religious beliefs, meaning businesses can legally refuse service to gay and transgender people. Consider what this means to your friends who are gay or have gay parents. Imagine if it were legal here for shops not to serve them or doctors not to treat them. on immigration and the Muslim ban. The irony here is that while Trump and Pence call to restore religious freedom, they are actively discriminating against an entire religion. Although he's now backpedaling, one of the main platforms of Trump's campaign was his promise to ban Muslims from the U.S., which sparked the flames of Islamophobia across the nation. And the consequences have been real. Google Trump election racism. Search why we're afraid. Stories are popping up all over, acts of discrimination documented in the last few days. Not just against Muslims, but Latinos, Asians, black and brown people, and women. Casual racism can turn into a hate crime in a flash. We're so fortunate to live where we do, but what if we lived somewhere else? Girls, it could just as easily be our friends. It could just as easily be us. There's a poem I remember, and I just looked it up, it's by Pastor Martin Niemöller, and it was written about the cowardice of German intellectuals when the Nazis took power. It reads, First they came for the socialists, and I did not speak out, because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionists, and I did not speak out, because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews, and I did not speak out, because I was not a Jew. Then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak for me. Maybe it seems dramatic, but as I sit here writing, I'm listening to the helicopters outside for the third night in a row. I'm watching the news cover the largest presidential protests in history across the nation. I'm reading my Facebook feed, messages of grief, fear, anger, and action among my friends. It is action that I want us to focus on. We need to be activists now. This next administration is not going to protect our civil rights, so we have to step up and fight for them. The issues above are the topics that mean most to me because I'm a biracial woman helping to raise two young women and because I have a large community of gay and ethnically diverse friends. But I want you to think about the issues that matter most to you and the causes that you want to protect. There are many more. Gun control, climate change, environmental issues like the Dakota Access Pipeline, education, affordable health care, the transgender bathroom law, all these things are at risk under a Trump-Pence administration. Outside of our church, I have rarely volunteered. I have taken very little interest in politics. I have not always voted in local elections. I'm going to change now. Kids, over the next few weeks, I want you to do some research. Find a cause that matters to you and a way you can help support it. If there's a gay-straight alliance at your school or a similar campaign, consider joining. Or find a local organization where you might volunteer. Most of these organizations welcome donations, and if you're moved to donate your money, that's wonderful. But that's not all we're going to do. 
We're going to talk about this over the next few weeks and learn how to be activists. This is the civil rights movement come around again. It's our turn to stand up. See you soon. Love, Aaron. We who believe in freedom cannot rest. We who believe in freedom cannot rest until until the killing of black men. For more on The Janice Adams Show, including links to the music heard, the historic speeches, and information about today's guests, visit my website, JaniceAdams.com. That's J-A-N-U-S Adams.com. Thanks to our guests and to you for joining us today. From the studios of WJFF Radio Catskill, I'm Janice Adams. We believe in freedom, 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 That which touches me most is that I had a chance to work with people, passing on to others that which was passed on to me. Come on. We believe in freedom and freedom till it comes. To me, young people come first. They have the courage where we fail. And if I can but shed some light as they carry us through the Secret of my